So let me welcome you to week number three, week three of this series where all through this month you know that we are thinking together about thriving. We are learning how to live a life where we do more than survive, we rather thrive. And there's a difference, isn't there? There is a big difference between just surviving and living a life where we thrive. In fact, would you look at your neighbor on both campuses and tell them, I want to thrive. Tell them, I want to thrive. Everybody does. Of course we can say that because everybody wants to live a life where we're thriving relationally and thriving in our walk with the Lord and and thriving emotionally. We just want to live a life where we are not just getting by. Remember, to thrive means to flourish. That's the best uh, definition. It means to flourish. A good Bible word, as I've mentioned every week, is to be fruitful, to have fruit in your life, or certainly it means to be prospering in in various areas and ways uh, in our lives. This idea of thriving is what Jesus had in mind in John chapter 10 and verse 10 when he said this, the thief comes to steal and to kill and to destroy, but I have come that you might have life and that you might have it abundantly. That abundant life is what Jesus has in mind when when he's talking about thriving. Uh, It is this life full of joy, full of purpose, full of impact, full of meaning. It is a life where we thrive in Christ. Now we've learned over the last few weeks that if we are going to thrive in our relationship with Jesus, we're going to thrive as a disciple of Jesus, that that doesn't happen automatically. But there are some things that we need to be uh, surrendering to in order to have that life. Let me remind you of what we learned so far. We began a couple of weeks ago by discovering that if we're going to thrive as a disciple of Christ, we must be devoted to Jesus. Listen, you can't just pray a prayer somewhere, say, hey, I prayed that prayer, I got saved, and and now I'm going to thrive for the rest of my life, and yet I'm I'm in no real way living under the lordship of Christ, or I'm not devoted to him. In Matthew 16, Jesus taught us that we need to align our thinking with the thinking of Jesus. We need to be his student, his pupil, his disciple. To savor, as he said in that text, Matthew 16, to savor the things that be of God, or to set our minds on the things that are of God and not of man. Be devoted to Jesus. Secondly, we learn that In order to be a disciple that's thriving, we must die to ourselves. Step off of the throne of my life. Let Jesus ascend the throne of my life and bow before him. So I'm dying to my ambitions. I'm dying to my demands. I'm dying to my my longings, my cravings, my way. And I'm saying, Jesus, I'm not Lord in my life. You are Lord in my life. Jesus said, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. If I'm going to be a thriving disciple, I need to die to myself. Number three, we learned last week that if we're going to be thriving disciples of Jesus, we need to grow as a witness for Christ. That This is the most important thing for us. It is the most important thing in life that we are to be a witness for Jesus. Those are the first three things that we must be surrendering to, participating in, Um, if we are going to thrive as disciples. Now, today we're going to talk about the fourth one. I want you to jot it down. Here it is, that to thrive as a disciple of Jesus, I must embrace a lifestyle of servanthood. To thrive as a disciple of Jesus, I must embrace a lifestyle 
of servanthood. Let me ask you a question. Would the people around you say that's you? If, if someone were to say, do you know the, the, the person in my life that just lives as a servant to those around them would be, would they put your name in that sentence? What does it mean to live as a servant? What does it mean to adopt a lifestyle of servanthood? Let me answer the question by holding your finger, if you will, in Matthew 20. I want to take you over to Philippians chapter 2, where Paul reminds us of what Jesus did, and he challenges us to do the same, and he tells us that this is what it looks like to be a servant. So Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse number 1. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, uh, any compassion and mercy, fulfill my joy that you be like-minded, have the same love for one another, be of one accord, of one mind with one another. Do nothing, verse 3, through strife or pride, vainglory, But in lowliness of mind, let each of you esteem others better than themselves. None of us should look to our own things, but rather all of us should look to the things of others. Do you notice the theme in Philippians chapter number 2? That it is about others. It is about elevating others. It is about lifting others up. It is about making ourselves second and others first. He says this is... This is what it looks like to be a servant. And then he tells us about Jesus. Look at verse 5. Let this mind or attitude be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So in verse 2, 3, and 4, when he says, don't do anything by your own pride or striving for it, but rather think of others before you think of yourself. Esteem others better than yourself. When he's elevating the value of others and us making ourselves subject to them and serving them, he says, by the way, this was the attitude that Christ had. And if you wonder that, verse number 6, he's speaking of Jesus who being in the form of God, that is, Jesus is very God. He is God. And even though he is God, he laid aside that glory. Verse number six, he emptied himself, or seven rather, he emptied himself and made himself of no reputation. And Jesus, very God, took upon himself, verse seven, the likeness or the form of a servant. So Paul says that you should be a servant of others if for no other reason... Because God, in Christ, became a servant. Now the word servant means, the the Greek word is doulos, it means to be subservient to, to subject, to be subject to. In some places the word is translated to be a slave or to be a bondman or a bond slave. And, And so Paul says, this is what you are to be. Like Christ was, you are to be a servant of others. Now, I think you'll agree with me. This is totally counterculture, isn't it? It's totally the opposite of what the world says should be your 
attitude in life. We live in a world which is all about a culture, which is all about self-actualization and self-expression and self-determination and having it your way and rising to the top and being first. And here comes the word of God and the, and the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the example of Christ speaking to us and saying, no, really what you should be is a servant. It's exactly, without ambiguity, what the Bible says will be true of those of us who truly want to thrive as disciples. So how does that strike you? I mean, don't answer out loud, but really, what do you think about that? Are you going, oh, that hurts a little bit. I'm not sure that I want to do that. You may say, well, I'll serve God, but I'm not serving any man. I'll serve God, but I'm not going to serve People, well, you're right, you ought to serve God. The Bible says that, by the way. Romans 6, 22 says we are the servants of God. Galatians 1 and verse 10 says we are the servants of Christ. That's okay, we, we, can, we can admit to that. But did you know that the Bible says in Romans 16, 1, you are to be the servants of the church? And were you aware that the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 9 and 19 that we are to be the servants of all And so, as we come to church this morning, people who say by our confession that we are disciples of Jesus Christ, we are followers of the Lord Jesus, then we need to hear the biblical injunction that we are to become servants, like Jesus was a servant. So, let's talk about that. Matthew chapter 20, if you'll go back there, our text is going to begin in verse number 20, and we'll read in a moment down through verse number 28. This passage is in two parts, really. You can divide it in two parts. Uh, From verse number 20 to verse number 23, you have a a bit of an odd request by two of John's, I'm sorry, two of Jesus' disciples, James and John, two brothers. They make a request along with their mother In verses 20 down through verse number 23, beginning in verse 24 down through verse number 28, Jesus then responds to the request and teaches his disciples about servanthood. Now the context begins all the way back in chapter 20 in verse number 1 where Jesus teaches a parable to his followers. Look at it, chapter 20 verse 1, it says, For the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is a householder. A householder is a landowner that would hire people to work in his fields or his vineyard. Uh, We would liken him to a farmer who who goes out and hires people to to work in his field. Jesus, in verse number 1, begins this parable telling about this man who needed some workers to work in his vineyard. Verse number 2 says that, uh, or verse number 1 says, he went out early in the morning before the sun comes up, it's 6 a.m., to hire laborers for his vineyard. So he goes down to the city center where the laborers, the day laborers would congregate and those who needed to hire people would come down. They would say, hey, I need 10 workers or whatever. They would hire them, take them to their, to their uh, property and they would work for the day. So this happens, verse number uh, one uh, and two. He hires some workers at six in the morning and he agrees with them that he will pay them one penny. Now that's not the equivalent of a penny today, it was a day's wage, a denarius. He says, I'll pay you for a day if you'll work for a day. 
And so they agree to that. Well, verse number three tells us that he goes out at 9 a.m. and hires some more to work. And verse number five, he goes out again at noon and hires some others. And at 3 p.m. he goes again and he hires some more. And then at 5 p.m. he goes out and he hires even more workers to work just one more hour. Verse number eight says, so when the evening was come, the Lord of the vineyard said to his steward, call the laborers, pay them, beginning from the last unto the first. And so the people that had worked from five o'clock to six o'clock, only one hour, get in line to be paid. And the guys who had worked from six in the morning are watching from the back of the line to see what they get paid. And they get paid a penny, a denarius, a full day's wage. And then the guys that went to work at three o'clock get paid a full day's wage. And the guys who went to work at noon get paid a full day's wage. And the guys that went to work at six in the morning are thinking, we are going to make bank today because we've been here all day. Surely he's going to give us more. And they come up and they get hold their hand out and he puts a penny in their hand. And they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. We've worked all day long and you've only paid us the same thing as you paid to those who only worked an hour. And Jesus said, did we make an agreement? that I would pay you a, p- a penny for a day? Don't be upset if I'm gracious to them. You, you take what we agreed to. That's, that's the parable. Okay, We'll talk about the meaning of it in a minute. Now the second thing that's in this context is in verse number 17 down through verse number 19 where Jesus warns his disciples they're on their way as this is happening. They're on their way to Jerusalem and he warns them in those verses that they are going to get to Jerusalem and while they are, he is going to be betrayed He is going to be condemned, he will be mocked, he will be beaten, scourged, and crucified. And both the parable and the warning of what's going to happen to Jesus, both of those things make the request that we're going to read beginning in verse 20 so out of touch, so cold, so calloused, and can I be honest, if y'all are listening to both campuses, shout amen. So like me on too many days that it's almost breathtaking. Look at verse 20. After teaching this parable, after telling them that he is going to be crucified, verse 20. Then there came to him the mother of Zebedee's children. That's James and John, two brothers. They're called the sons of thunder. The mother of Zebedee's children with her sons, James and John came with her, worshiping Jesus and desiring a certain thing of him. And he said unto her, what wilt thou? What would you have me to do for you? What can I do for you? She said to him, here's my request, grant please that these my two sons may sit the one on your right hand, the other on your left hand in your kingdom. It's a simple request. Let my two sons sit, one on the right, one on the left, in your kingdom. Jesus said, verse 22, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink of the cup that I shall drink and be baptized? uh, And be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. Now, by the way, can we give Salome, we believe that's her name, Zebedee's wife, the mother of James and John, can we give her a little bit of grace because she's a mama? She's got a mama heart. 
But she was, I believe, prompted to ask this question by James and John. Here's why I believe it. Because she asks the question. Jesus doesn't answer her. He speaks to the boys. She says, can they sit on your right hand and their left? Jesus looks to James and John and says, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? Can you be baptized with the baptism I'm getting ready to be baptized with? He's talking about his suffering and his rejection and his mocking and his crucifixion. And they answer, yes, we are able. And he said unto them, you shall indeed drink of my cup and be baptized uh, with the baptism that I'm baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and my left, well, that's not mine to give. It shall be given to them for whom it is prepared of my father. Can we just say, wow. I mean, how tone deaf can you be to hear this teaching, this parable, and then come out with that question? Or how cold-hearted and selfish must you be to hear our Lord saying, guys, in a few days I'm going to be mocked and beaten and rejected and, and crucified. And then to say, oh, well, anyway... When we come into your kingdom, can we be first? Can we be on your right hand and your left? And by the way, that is what they said. Can we be first? Can we have those places of prominence? Can we be celebrated? Can we be highest at your table? Do you remember the definition of a servant? One who is subservient to others? One who doesn't put himself first, but one who puts herself second. A servant is one who does not demand to be chief or first, but who is willing to let others be in that place. So James and John are demonstrating an attitude not of servanthood. In fact, they're demonstrating the opposite of a servant's heart in this ask. Now, a couple of things that I want us to write down and remember about this, because this is our problem as well. It's very simply to begin with that, that when we choose, like James and John, to say, I want to be first. When we choose not to serve, write it down, we feel entitled. I deserve to be first. That's what they were saying. They, they were saying, let us be first. It's the same thing that in the parable, the workers who had gone to work at six in the morning, it's the same thing they said in verse number 10. Look at it in Matthew 20. But when the first came, they supposed that they should have received more. We deserve more. We worked harder. We started earlier. In fact, they go on to say in verse number 12, we endured the heat of the sun. We have worked longer, we have worked harder, we have been better, we are better servants, and we deserve to be first. And we feel when we refuse to serve, we feel like we're entitled to in fact be served and to be first. The second thing that's true when we choose not to be servants is that we expose our own pride. We reveal the pride of our hearts. Verse number 22, Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. 
James, John, you, you, do you understand what you're asking? I'm getting ready to drink a cup of suffering and death. Can you drink that cup? I'm getting ready to be overwhelmed with, with crucifixion. I'm going to be baptized, immersed in suffering and death. Can you be baptized in that same baptism? And look at their response in verse number 22. We can. We are able. Absolutely. Bring it on. They revealed their pride. In the same way that those in the parable revealed their pride in verse 12. Saying, these last ones, they've only worked an hour. But we, we have borne the heat of the sun and we have borne a greater burden. So what James and John said. We're prideful. and We deserve to be first. We're able to drink the cup. Now, by the way, Jesus said to them, well, we'll see. <laughs> In fact, you will drink the cup that I'm going to drink, and you will be baptized with the baptism that I'm going to be baptized with. He's looking forward to their own suffering for him later after they've received the Holy Spirit. Do you know that James was the first Christian martyr uh, of the disciples, I should say? You, James is martyred for his faith in Jesus in Acts chapter 12 and verse 2. When he's run through with a sword by King Herod. And we know that John suffered greatly because he was exiled on the Isle of Patmos. And so, and so Jesus says to them, well, you say that you're able. You're going to drink of the cup. We'll see. But to, but to put you first or second in the kingdom, it's not for me to do. God will give a righteous judgment by his grace and based on our willingness to serve others. It's the point of the parable and it's what Jesus is teaching James and John out of this unusual and prideful and elitist request. Now, when you continue reading the passage, beginning in verse number 24, you'll see that their pride and their refusal to serve caused division among the disciples. Verse number 24, it says, And when the ten, the other ten disciples, heard the request of James and John, they were what? They thought it was a wonderful idea, and they said, Yes, they're the best. You should put them first in the kingdom. Is that what happened? No, they were mad. They were ticked off. Who do you think you are? You should be first. Which, by the way, says something about their own pride because they thought they should be first instead of James and John being first. But they were angry with each other. So now suddenly you have this division, James and John off by themselves and the ten disciples on the other side, and they're angry with one another. And watch what Jesus does in verse number 25. But Jesus called them unto himself. And he began to speak the word to them. By the way, if y'all are listening, shout amen. amen. Do you know that when we are at odds with our brothers and sisters in Christ, when we're at odds with our spouse, when we're angry with one another, if we know Jesus, do you know what Jesus does? He reconciles us through his presence and his word. That's what he did for these. And if you say, well, I just need reconciling in some relationships. If you know Jesus and that person knows Jesus, let me tell you what you need. You just need Jesus to be present and his word to speak truth. So Jesus brings them together and he begins to teach them. Verse 25. 
He said to them, you know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, over those over whom they are the princes, and they that are great among the Gentiles exercise authority over those over whom they are greater. But it shall not be so among you. Listen carefully. It shall not be so among you. It shall not be so among you. Verse 26. But whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. And whoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Even as the Son of Man, Jesus, came not to be ministered to or not to be served, but to minister, to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many, which, by the way, is exactly what Paul was referring to when he said that Christ, who is in the form of God, laid aside that glory and took on him the form of a servant. Jesus teaches them in this passage, and he teaches us about the attitude of a servant. I want you to know that there is an attitude of the world and there is an attitude of a servant. And Jesus teaches them and us that we need to take on the attitude of a servant. I emphasized a few minutes ago, verse number 26, by reading it over and over again, what is true in this passage. And it is this teaching of Jesus that we in the church, we who know Christ, we don't operate like the world operates. Loved ones, I want you to hear me. We, we're not to think like the world thinks. We're not to function like the world functions. We're not to relate like the world relates. We're not to respond like the world responds. It shall not be so among you. The attitude that he teaches us to have is the opposite attitude of what the princes and the chief ones, the powerful ones in the world have. Notice verse number 26, or verse 25. He says, you know that in the world there are, there's, there's princes. And those princes have authority over people. And when they exercise their authority, they do it with domination. They exercise dominion over them. Now, a lot of ways to exercise dominion. It can be brute force. Or it can be a lot of different things that we withhold or, or love that we withhold or unforgiveness that we withhold or the silent treatment or whatever. There are a lot of ways that we exercise dominion and we don't act like servants. He says they exercise dominion. And they that are great, verse number 25, they exercise authority over whom they are greater. What he means is that in the world, those who are the greatest, the first, the most, the, the, the most advanced, the, the, the ones who are the princes, if you will, they rule with an expectation of obedience. They demand and expect that their demands be met. They have their wants, their demands, and those things are always going to come first. Why is that the case? Here's why. Because in the world, the operating system by which the world functions is the system of power. To the powerful go the spoils. To the powerful is the victory. 
That's the way the world operates. But it shall not be so among you. He says, we don't operate that way, verse 26. It is not to be that way among us. Why not? Because within the body of Christ, within the church, in the kingdom, we operate by a different operating system. Our operating system is not power. Our operating system is love. If y'all are listening, say amen. That's the reason that when we want to be great, we become servants. Because servanthood demonstrates love. Power, dominion, simply uh, demonstrates strength in the relationship or strength in the moment. So we operate with an attitude or we are to operate with an attitude of servanthood based on love. So let's talk about that. Where should that happen? In what context should it be obvious that we are living with a servant's heart, with an attitude of servanthood? Let me suggest three contexts, three areas. Number one, within the church. Because that's what he's talking about, right? Within the body of Christ. So within the church, we do not function on the basis of power. We function on the basis of love. It's the way we operate. And so love and servanthood ought to guide and direct and enforce and reward all of our relationships. That's true of pastors. A biblical pastor does not lord over the people that he shepherds. He is not exercising power in that church, but rather, as the Bible says in 1 Peter 5, he is to operate as a servant leader of the people of God and lovingly lead those people in all that God calls us to. That's the way we're to operate. Not based on power, but on love. It also is the way that we ought to operate as a congregation, relationally. That as we deal with one another within the body of Christ, as we, as we deal with offenses, as we deal with hurts or disappointments, as we deal with being sinned against or having sinned against someone else, the responses in those situations ought to always be motivated by love. In fact, Paul writes about this in 1 Timothy chapter number 5 where he says, here's the way that you should treat every person within your church. Men who are older than you, treat them as you would your father. Women who are older than you, treat them as you would your mother. Men who are younger than you, treat them as you would your brother. And women who are younger than you, treat them as you would your sister. So that when we interact with one another as a church, we are always coming, uh, and by the way, not your dysfunctional father, mother, sister, or brother, (laughs) but as a family under the lordship of Christ, that we should be coming together, treating one another as we would family. That's the first place where we ought to to serve one another uh, and operate on the basis of love. Uh, in the church. Secondly, in the Christian home. It ought to be obvious in the Christian home that we serve one another out of a spirit of humble servanthood that permeates all family dynamics. Loved ones, 
If you're married, your marriage should look differently than the marriage of the unsaved people down the street. You say, well, my friends, they operate like this. My friend is married to his wife. This is what he tells her. My friend is married to a husband. This is what she says to him. Verse 26, it shall not be so among you. We don't function like the world functions. On the basis of love and servanthood, we are to operate differently with a heart of service. So here's what that means. Ephesians 5.21 says, within the marriage relationship... Let there be a spirit of mutual submission. Ephesians 5.21, husbands, wives, submit yourselves to one another in the fear of the Lord. That's where it begins. Heart of servanthood on both spouses. Then he says, wives, you submit yourselves to your husbands with a heart of servanthood. And husbands, you love your wives sacrificially with servanthood in the same way that Christ loves the church. And children, mamas and daddies, listen to me. You should raise your children to learn that in, the, in our home, Christ is our Lord. We serve one another. And what that means is in our home, children obey your parents in the fear of the Lord. That the boss in the house is not the, the child, the boss in the house are the parents. And we do that not simply to maintain control, we do it to the honor of Jesus Christ in the heart of servanthood. And the parents don't exasperate their kids. They don't frustrate their children, but they lovingly serve and raise their children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. This is where it ought to show up that we're living with an attitude of servanthood at church, in the home. Y'all with me? Number three, where you go to work, in the workplace. For every Christian employee, Christian employees and Christian employers should have a heart of service. Ephesians chapter six goes on to say, employees, you should serve Christ as you do your job and you serve that that. Uh, a business owner, that boss, that manager, you serve Christ as you serve them. Because God gave you that job and you ought to serve in that job like you realize it's a gift from the Lord. You may say, well, I don't like my job. Well, you may not. And it may not be the job you want to stay in for the rest of your life. But God gave it to you. He provided it to you. And so you should worship him and have a heart of service within it. Christian employers, same thing. You should have a heart of service towards your employees. Not threatening, not, not being harsh and unkind, but a heart of service. Because Christian employers and businesses and employees should look differently than the world looks. And Christian marriages and parents and children should look differently than the world looks. And Christian churches certainly should look different than the world looks. And all of this is driven by, made possible only as we have an attitude of servanthood, motivated by love. Number two, this passage tells us not simply about the attitude of a servant, but secondly, it gives us some insight into the actions of a servant. If I live with the heart of a servant, then what will that look like in my relationships? What action steps will I need to take? Verse number 26 and 27, he says in verse 26, let it not be so among you, but whoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. Whoever will be chief among you, let him be your 
servant. If you want to be great, considered great in the kingdom, he says that that happens as we become servants. If you want to excel in the kingdom, if you want to be elevated in the kingdom, that happens as we decrease, as we go low. In fact, turn one or two pages. Look at Matthew chapter 23. You should mark it. Matthew 23 verse 11, just one verse. Jesus says, but he that is greatest among you. You want to know who I think is the greatest, Jesus says? You want to know the one that I give the blue ribbon in the kingdom? Jesus says. He that is greatest among you shall be your servant. So if I have an attitude of servanthood motivated by a heart of love, then then what steps am I going to take? If I'm going to become a servant, if I'm going to become someone's minister, someone's servant, well, well that is a, it's a, it's an intentional decision. I'm making a decision to do that. And so, so let me suggest a decision that you should make. In order to live this out in, in your life in practical ways, let me suggest to you that you should begin to move toward people in relationships. You should begin to move toward people in relationship. You see this in verse 26 and in verse number 27. Let him, if you're going to be great, anybody that's going to be great, let him, one person, become your, another person, servant. So so if I have an attitude of service, now I need to step into service and become, literally begin to serve someone, some person, some people. How do I do that? When he says in verse number 26, let him become your, your minister, the word is diakonos. It's, it's, we get our word deacon from it. It means a table waiter, someone who serves, someone who's ready to serve a need. And then in the next verse, verse 27, he says, let him become your servant. That's that word doulos. Let him become the one who willingly, relationally, uh, intentionally chooses to become subject to, not first but second. So here's here's a fundamental, unchangeable fact. People who are isolated are not servants. It's impossible. Now you might be physically isolated. I mean, certainly there are people who cannot be around others for various physical reasons, but you still can lean into relationships and serve. But if you isolate yourself intentionally, you keep everybody at arm's distance. Nobody gets any closer than that. Then it's impossible for you to be a servant because to be a servant, you got to go lean into that relationship. So who are you going to serve? How are you going to do it? Where do you do it? Well, let me, a lot of places, but let me suggest a few. Are you in a life group? Have you joined a life group yet? I know the answer, by the way. I mean, I don't know individually, but I know the percentages of our church that are, and there's a significant portion that aren't. Can I challenge you? Can I recommend to you that you should talk to our life group department and get connected in a life group, if for no other reason, so that you can say, you know what, I'm going to join a life group so I can get my hands dirty. I can serve those people. I can be there when they have a need. Maybe it means you need to find somebody who's hurting, sick, elderly, widowed, lonely, struggling, and lean in and serve them. 
Let him become your servant. Lean in relationally. Matthew, I'm sorry, John chapter number 13, Jesus on the night before he's arrested, demonstrated servanthood better than any other place in Scripture, perhaps, when he, in fact, said, you've seen what I did, you should do the same. And what did he do? He washed the disciples' feet, robed himself in a servant's, a slave's garment, got on his hands and knees with a basin of water, took the dirty, dusty feet of the disciples in his hands and washed them and said, you should do the same. And you know you can't wash feet from a distance without a water hose, and he didn't have one. And so Jesus put his hands to the task. We need to have an attitude of service, and then we need to take some action steps in order to be a servant. One last thing, and it would be impossible to not mention verse number 28, where Jesus, giving this instruction, says, you should be servants if you want to be great. You should be a servant, a minister, Verse 28, even as the Son of Man came, not to be ministered unto, not to be served, but to minister and to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So you have the attitude of servanthood, the actions of a servant, and then the example of a servant. Jesus is the great example, isn't he? This is what Philippians 2 said. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ, who being in the form of God, very God, thought that was not something he had to cling to, but rather he emptied himself. He laid it aside. And he became a man. And becoming a man, he took on him the form of a servant. And he served the purposes of our salvation. The greatest tribute that will ever be given to you when your funeral comes and someone stands and eulogizes you, the greatest tribute they could give to you would not be to speak of your intellect or your career or your wealth or your hobbies. The greatest tributes I ever hear uh, hear given at a funeral are the words which say something like this, She just served everybody she could. She gave her life away. He just was willing to serve however, whomever, at any time. Those are the greatest tributes. And by the way, that is the tribute that all of us long to hear from God himself when we stand before him, to hear him say, well done, good and faithful One of these days, Jesus will determine who will be at his right hand and who will be at his left and where we will be in the kingdom of God, all by his grace. But on that day, he will evaluate our service to him as we served others. There's a beautiful story in uh, Acts chapter 9 of a woman who died. Her name was Tabitha. And uh, Peter ultimately raises her from the dead. But before that, when he comes into the room, all of her friends and family are gathered there. Her body is laid out on a table. She's washed and ready for burial. And when Peter walks in the room, the women are all weeping, and they're holding up and showing him these garments that she used to make. She used to prepare garments, sew garments for the poor. And they were saying, look how she served other people. The beautiful tribute to a woman who was a servant of God. 
And loved ones, here's what I want you to know, both campuses, hear me carefully. That in the family of God, there are no great ones. Jesus is the great one. We are privileged to be called his humble servants. And so may God give us grace to be just that.